0: Last time on the show, I said that our next episode was going to be looking at one of those landmark Twilight Zones. One of those ones that everyone remembers. One of those ones that will often be in top 10 lists, that kind of thing. It is, of course, a game of pool. But with it being such a landmark episode, I want to make sure that it's done right. Now, the month of May is a bit of a busy one for me. And while it is prepared for the most part, it's not quite there yet. And in a few days time, I'm going away on holiday and I'm gonna be back in the USA. I've spent many happy years in America. I do love the country, I love the people, and it's been too long since I've been there. So I'm really happy to be going back for a week or so and it's one of the reasons why i'm so appreciative that the american audience has really taken to the twilight zone podcast because after all it is an american show so having a brit kind of commentating on one of your landmark tv shows and have it well received is a really a a point of pride for me so like i said i don't have time at the moment to really put the polish on that Game of Pool episode that I wanted to do. So what I've decided to do is have one of our Rod Sailing interview episodes mixed in with some listener feedback. Now these Rod Sailing interview episodes, I initially started doing them on months where I didn't really have much time to do a regular episode. But one thing I've found is people seem to really like these episodes. You know, the feedback I get from people after listening to them has always been really great. So it's no bad thing to hear from the man himself sometimes. So the clips I'm gonna play tonight are actually presented on YouTube in short segments of a few minutes. Now apparently they were filmed in 1968 and directed by a gentleman called Bill Harrison while he was a faculty member in the TV and radio department in Ithaca College. So it is Rod Sailing sitting down, talking with the students and discussing certain aspects of being a writer for television. So while they are presented in short clips, let's listen to them that way and I'll read out some listener feedback in between. So submitted for your approval is Rod Sailing at Ithaca College in 1968.
1: Where do ideas come from?
0: Where do they come from,
2: do I say? Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue, in your own language form. Uh, Ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air, like like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. Then the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed.
1: A person who's creative is an artist no matter what he's creating in. And if they're creative in that respect, they don't even care about their audience. Fellini, when he makes a film, he doesn't care whether anybody ever sees it or not. Truly? Is that a quote from Fellini? That's a quote from Fellini.
2: Is that right? Interesting. I wonder if that really doesn't play hob with the function of an artist. If indeed you can say that I create for my own sake, my own edification, my own titillation, and to hell with anybody else, is that truly a gauge of art as a form? Because isn't art a shared experience? Isn't the excellence of art dependent on a reaction from the outside to someone's
3: work? I think that the. That'll the be just director, about enough out of you, Doris, if yeah. I hear another word out of you. I think to, uh, the director who said he didn't care about, his, uh, about the audience's reaction is caring about it. I mean, it may be his intention. Bergman said at one point that the audience needed medicine, and it was his to dole out. But he still thinks of the audience as an integral part of making the work. That is, when he directs a scene, it will be seen by people someday. Therefore, he takes the audience into account. It might not
4: be the present audience. Ives carted the music into the barn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Another then we thinking... hear it now
2: you know, aware of the fact that this may not make it in my time, but ultimately sure. shall make it. Of course, I think, there's a isn't there a risk you run if you preoccupy yourself with audience reaction at the expense of either your own integrity or your own artistic judgment? Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that 90% of the writers who walk around laying claim to the honored sobriquet of writer are thinking in a sizable portion of their mind, uh, well, they love it in Des Moines. Well, they understand it in New Orleans and, consequently, will deliberately prostitute and write downward to, to what they believe is the lowest common denominator. And when you start to preoccupy yourself, I think you're in trouble. This is not to say that I, I wouldn't share the Fellini feeling, if indeed that's the way he thinks, that I will write only for dirty old rod, and that which pleases me must please you and if it doesn't to hell with you. But, on the, but the reverse, I think, the concern should also be extant, that I must realize that Because I am writing in an art form, the whole function of the art form is to be translated to other people. There's an emotional experience to be shared. Consequently, it isn't just me and my tower. It's how people will react to what I write.
0: friend of the show, Michael, wrote in with a comment about The Shelter. He said, Just listened to The Shelter and wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed it. Especially your reference to the context home bomb shelters I'm always interested in. As I mentioned in an earlier email, I do recall a store in our neighborhood selling prefab shelters. When the atomic bomb scare subsided, we used to go over and play in the samples that were abandoned on an open lot. One of the things I always found ironic about the episode was that it aired at a time when duck and cover, duck under your school desk and cover your head with your hands, was an acceptable way. Of protecting oneself from the shock heat wave of the initial blast of an atomic bomb. We did that every Tuesday at grammar schools when the city air raid siren was tested. As a kid, I was always confused by this because when you saw replays of the destructive force of atomic bomb tests on TV, it sure didn't seem like hiding under a school desk offered much protection, and if duck and cover was enough, Why were atomic bomb shelters necessary? Being a kid in the 50s and 60s was full of these contradictory issues. Thanks for your email, Michael. You know, it's interesting. I I think a lot of these things that people are told to do in these situations, I think it's more about just keeping the populace um, calm, isn't it? Rather than it being an actual method of protection or something that's going to keep people safe. It's kind of like you know, telling people on an airplane to put their head between their legs or whatever. You know, if an airplane crashes, it's really not gonna do much good. So it's, uh, it's very interesting to hear something from from around that time. So thank you for writing in. Do
4: you feel that many young writers are so anxious to uh, espouse a cause that their characters lose believability? No question about
2: it. Moot point, valid point, altogether well said. Head of the class if there is one at the moment. Yes, Dave, and understandably so, and I'm altogether sympathetic. What are you dealing with now in terms of plot points, themes, concerns now? The world and everything in it. Hunger, poverty, the anguish of the human race, the desperate sense of self-destruction that we entertain all the time, the deep, pervading gloom that comes with our inability to cope. Of course you're going to over-concern yourself with issues. It's right that you should do so. And it's expected this year, next year, but not three years from now. Leave that soapbox behind. Carry with you at all times your sense of caring and your concern, but put it into the mouths of flesh and blood people. If not, right tracks. I mentioned storylines, and you both indicated to me that it had been done, and I didn't realize it. That's a risk you run often. Even the, the best read of us, not to be defensive about it, aren't totally aware of all the classic literature, and you'll come up with a plot line which you think is altogether unique and, you're, and your own. I once did a show on The Twilight Zone about a guy who makes a bet that he can keep quiet for a whole year. Now, I did not realize it at the time, but uh, there was a short story called The Bet, and I think a Chekhov sh- short story, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, that's one where he was locked in the glass that's right, room in the yeah, men's that's room. That's right. Yeah. He constantly talks, and a fellow says to him, if, if you keep quiet and, and are willing to, you know, uh, be under observation, so we know you don't talk, and not say a word for one year, I'll give you 50,000 pounds. And he says, great, because he desperately needed the money. So they put him in this glass room. Do you recall this story? Mm-hmm and uh, he doesn't say a word. And the only and the, there are two switches to this story. Number one, the year ends, and he is let out of his glass room, and in truth he has said not a word. But the guy who made the bet with him, despite the fact that he's a member of the club, doesn't have 50,000 pounds. He doesn't have five pounds. And here is a guy who's remained silent for an entire year to win a bet, and the guy can't cover, can't honor his bet. And then the second switch is that our talkative one, is so talkative that he really didn't believe that he could stay quiet. So he had his larynx cut, his sound, his sound uh, box. So you have the double irony there. Now if, for example, I pose the problem to you that there is a talkative one amongst us, uh, and, and somebody makes a bet with him that he'll remain silent for a year, can you fill up a story this way, what happens? <coughs> The silence is mm-hmm. absolutely no, so right
4: now. You can know. take it a lot of different ways. Tell me when. Uh, I you was... could take it in terms of what the man then does do, assuming that he's not put in such a glass cage. Go on. Assuming that he then must uh, fulfill his need to talk by other activities. Go on. Uh, you're coming close you to can, Chekhov now. All right, yeah, you, you can take it through uh, all kinds of very, very uh, strong emotions and very, very strong kinds of physical things. Uh, You could take it to his writings, you could take it to a certain kind of uh, concentration on his own inner self, his uh, self-analysis. So what happens at the end of the (coughs) year?
2: No, follow the point.
4: Can you tell me? As I said, there there are five or six different ways that you could do it. let's say,
2: I'm going to give you the Chekhov line now. Uh There's altogether shallow, talkative, big-mouthed klutz who makes this bet. In the Chekhov story, he goes in and for the first time in his life, has a kind of an enforced serenity. There's nothing he can do because talking has always been a sort of force majeure. That's all he can do properly. He begins to read. Do you recall the story, Doris? No. And after 12 months of reading the classic literature of our time, he comes out the most well-rounded, the most beautifully thoughtful, sensitive human being who ever lived. He knows Thoreau, he knows Socrates, he knows Moses, he knows the word of God, he knows the word of the ancients and of the angels and he becomes an altogether incredibly well-rounded man. That's the Chekhov story.
3: There's another way you could take that, assuming that uh, he accepted the bet, and then following him in those situations where we normally communicate our feeling by talking, in a love situation with a child, with friends, uh, and all of the emotions, and and then scoring the fact that he's having a very difficult time and is very inarticulate by action, by the actions of love, or fatherhood, uh, signs, the languages of sign, and touch. Without voice, he senses. cannot He cannot do these things. You know? But was... finding at the end of the year that his difficulty gets gets less, he brings this under control, so that at the end of the year, when he's about to win the bet, that doesn't matter anymore because he's found that, that words are not a particularly That's good... That's pretty reasonable. I'm more
0: cruel than that because I would have him need that money desperately to he feels that the money would help him uh, get his marriage on stable grounds, you know, have his children love him, and all this sort of thing. But by the time he's been quiet and hasn't communicated with anybody for a year, everything's fallen apart anyway, and he can't. The money uh, that won't, goes back right. to the old you the know, money not That's an still the truth. Tw- yeah. yeah. you know. he, he
4: <laughs> when he went in the room, he felt he needed the money. When he came out, he no longer felt he needed exactly the money at the all. Exactly the check offline, yeah. Dave. Right. But as he walks out of the room. Everybody will not talk to him, they just walk away, and then he sees the hearse go by in the road. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You went to
2: off one better.
0: I've had an email from Jennifer, and she says, Hi Tom, I just watched The Invaders, and thought I'd share a few things, since I was a little surprised I enjoyed it as much as I did. I admit to listening to the podcast for this one, before I watch the episode. I usually do the reverse. I had already heard about the plot, this being a favourite of many, so I wasn't worried about spoilers, I'm one of the first time viewers if you recall. I thought maybe the tiny American astronauts might be too funny to elicit any of the intended suspense, but I was very wrong. The actress's superb solo performance and increasing anxiety really escalate the suspense created by the hiding and jumping out of the Americans the missing knife on the wall and the beam of light from the off-camera source playing through the little hole in the wall. The way she's injured by these comparatively tiny beings was initially funny and didn't quite work for me, but some of her reactions and motions hint that maybe she's more primitive, a less intelligent being perhaps. Further selling this line of thinking for me was that whether talking about aliens from another planet or unfamiliar cultures from another country the belief that the group a person belongs to is the superior one and that the unknown group must be inferior savages is depressingly prevalent i don't know if sailing might have been lampooning this view or he fell into the trap or i've misread it completely i thoroughly enjoyed it though i love the space inspired episodes from this era where is everybody third from the sun People are alike all over, and even I shot an arrow might qualify. Growing up, most of my friends wanted to be astronauts, and were obsessed with the movie Space Camp, so that might explain it. I had to look the specifics up, but the Soviet Union put Sputnik into orbit in 1957. They sent Yuri Gagarin up in 1961, and the US sent John Glenn up in 1962. Given the timing, these significant events must have infused the storytelling with the hope, optimism, and seemingly endless possibilities presented by the beginnings of space travel. I always wonder what it must have been like to experience that first explosion of imagination when something previously so abstract and limitless became tangible or even measurable in some small way. Until next time, Jennifer. You know, it's always nice to get the thoughts of a first-time Twilight Zone watcher, so thank you, Jennifer. Your comments about whether that um, the invaders had some kind of subtext about that, it's interesting. It's an interesting point. I don't know. I, I think my own view, it was a Richard Matheson episode, if I remember rightly, is that I find with a lot of the Twilight Zones, Sailing is the main kind of subtext guy. And the other writers, Beaumont and Matheson, they tend to often just tell you strange tales, you know? There's not so much of the subtext. I'm not talking exclusively. I'm sure there are some examples of it. But they're the ones who would just kind of spin a strange yarn. I think The Invaders is probably one of those Probably built around this twist that he had in his head, rather than trying to sort of comment on something. But I might be wrong, you know. They're working on levels that are beyond, you know, beyond the likes of me. So who knows? You never know. But it's it's a great observation. So thank you for writing in. Very often, I find that within the framework
2: of the science fiction or fantasy genre, the use of traveling back in time is a very effective way of producing contrasts. Uh, of producing a kind of a freewheeling storytelling device, which is why I used going back in time. And there's another reason, (coughs) which very much relates to any discussion of creativity, is that every writer, and I don't think there are any... I can't conceive of anybody not falling into this pattern who writes, has certain special loves, certain special hang-ups, certain special preoccupations and predilections, in my case, it's a hunger to be young again, a desperate hunger to go back where it all began. And I think you'll see this as a running thread and through a lot of things that I write. And part of creativity, of course, is being able to have the capacity to convey that kind of hunger, that kind of nostalgia, that kind of bittersweet feeling to those who have never had it. Before. And I think that's the most singularly difficult part of the act of creation particularly in story form. Uh, I can tell you a thousand plots, brilliant premises, that are really knock you out. And, and as a producer of his show, I've had st- uh, writers come to me and say, gee, I've got a notion. And they then proceed to tell you a brilliant notion to the point of the climax. And that's where everything dissolves. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you wonder, where is act three? What does he do? What happens?
1: But, Doris?
4: But how do you overcome that? You know, how, do you, how
0: do you find that climax?
1: Should you write the climax first? If you have the climax,
2: I would much prefer having a climax and then build my house around that climax, rather than start with a premise and have to worry. I'm in the middle of a project right at the moment, which is, I think, a terribly interesting, bizarre notion of the freezing process of the human being, in which uh, an astronaut, Congressional Medal of Honor winner, marvelously knowledgeable uh, space aviation guy, is suffering an incurable disease, which really requires for his survival the replacement of certain organs. And because of the transplant phenomena, the rejection thing, they can't possibly perform the operation. So they freeze his body. They, they, they do a, a, a biopsies kind of thing in which 18 years hence, when they are now surgically able to fix him and put him together and perform the transplants, they will do so. Well, 18 years go by and he wakes up and they perform the operation and everything is fine, but he wakes up to a world which is so ugly and overpopulated and full of vermin and, and ecological nightmare that he doesn't know how to survive in it. Now, you're going to ask me, well, what happens? And I don't know. I wish to God I did.
1: And
2: that's where I'm hung up. And it's that desperate climax problem. Is there any kind of therapy
4: such as writing about yourself that helps? <coughs> I think so. characterization.
1: I think
2: self-knowledge is one of the beautiful and marvelous and creative aids that we have, know thyself, uh, because you can look at yourself in the mirror and get a whole list of all of the human attributes and human frailties that are extant. Whatever is wrong with you is conceivably wrong with most of your peers. Whatever is decent and good and fine and caring that is a part of your nature is also the meritorious aspects of, again, your peers but if you know yourself, and this is one of the marvelous key self tests that you can make all the time in your writing, just a piece of dialogue, would I say it? And if I heard it, would I believe it? That kind of thing.
0: Now in the last show when we talked about The Passersby*, By, I asked a question about a show called Medic that featured Abraham Lincoln in it, and it was the same actor who played Lincoln in The Twilight Zone, and I wondered because I, I thought Medic was a contemporary show set at those times, but you know I hadn't actually seen it, so I didn't know for sure. But Dave has written in and answered that question for us. He says, hi Tom, love your podcast. On the episode covering the Passersby, you mentioned the mid 50s anthology show Medic and asked how the show might have featured an appearance by Abraham Lincoln. While the show is mostly set in the present day, It would take historical looks at significant roles doctors played often in regard to medical breakthroughs in black friday the show profiled dr charles leal who was in the audience at ford's theater when president lincoln was shot and worked for 12 hours trying to save lincoln's life it's an excellent series and many episodes are available to view online although black friday doesn't appear to be one of them, and that was from Dave. So there we go, question answered, and I suppose with it being the same actor, you could call that a prequel to The Passersby if you are so inclined. So thank you for filling that gap for us, Dave.
1: How about your uh, philosophy? Like we talked about Mailer as being an existentialist and things like this. Uh, Would you inject yours into a piece of work or into your character and try it? Have the novel, or the short story, or the movie, or whatever it is, a part of you in that Forever, respect? constantly, and sometimes to my undying discredit art. Intentionally or unintentionally? I think it's
2: totally unintentionally. I think it's a purely subjective exercise. I don't think I'm aware of it, but very often one of the major problems with strong writers who deal in dialogue above plot, which happens to be, I think, more my than than plot dialogue, If you look at some of the pages of the stuff I've written and even some of the good things, shut your eyes, you won't know who's talking because they all talk alike. And who do they talk like? Me. Now that's wrong, and it's something I've got to lick over the years, but it's the most common literary problem, I think, of strong dialoguists. Do you make
0: notes and outlines and characterizations and plot outlines and things like that, or do you just take off and write?
2: I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, i just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday, and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise, Doris. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. Now, other writers, and many fine writers, and many writers finer than I, I might add, are very craftsmanlike, like meticulous uh, delvers into, into structures, scenes, costumes, autobiographies of their people. They have everything seen down in note form before they begin. They also have a very good idea of the sense of, if it's a
1: play, they're acts. If it's a, if it's a novel, they're chapters. I don't at all. I just have a rough sense. Would you write more than uh, one work at a time? I mean, do you feel you have to have that pressure behind you? I write pretty well that way, now. Dick, because I'm sort of a, you know, a
2: product of the times, which is the mass media, and many television writers and screenwriters will dabble on a couple of levels at the same time, uh, not with the knowledge of their employers, but you know, for their own, <laughs> own edification, and they do this, I think, out of compulsion in part, out of the fact that they may have become hung up in one of their projects and very often just because that's the way they work best uh i wouldn't advise it necessarily you know as a run-of-the-mill approach to writing but if you can handle two or three projects at a time i don't think that hurts if you can totally divorce yourself from the other
0: i've had an email from a gentleman by the name of zach and he is one of the creative forces in a film production company called hand me down films and he says hi tom i just wanted to take a moment and tell you how much I enjoyed the Twilight Zone podcast. I've been a huge fan of the show since college, and find I'm going back to it more and more for inspiration, and to reinvigorate my love of film, especially older films. I'm a filmmaker from Fairfax, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. My filmmaking colleagues and I are constantly discussing the Twilight Zone, and its influence on us and other shows, films, filmmakers we love. I've sent your show to all of them so that they can get hooked like I have. Personally, there are two things about your show that I find really refreshing. The first is your positive and laid back attitude. You're passionate about the show, but not argumentative, like so many other podcast hosts who discuss pop culture, such as the subject of Star Wars. I really enjoy your consideration of everyone's different theories and views of the shows and their themes. I love discussion, and you invite discussion, not arguments. You know, Zach, uh, like I, re- I replied on your email, uh, you're absolutely right, I just, you know, there are some areas of fandom that can be quite toxic at times, and I just don't get it, you know, I just don't get it. A, a group of people who all love the same thing, and of course there's gonna be disagreements, I mean, there's been a lot of disagreements probably with people listening to my critique of episodes of The Twilight Zone, that they don't agree with episodes I do like or don't like, but that's gonna happen, isn't it, you know? And that's that's just the way it goes. So to, to be so aggressive and toxic about something that you're supposed to love, man, I just don't have the energy for that. So it's a, it really baffles me. So I'm glad you picked up on that, thank you. And he goes on to say, the second is your trivia. I'm constantly fascinated with the anecdotes you talk about in such a fond way. I've been searching for years to find good books about the shows, and because of your recommendations, I can finally buy some and know they'll be good. You know, I mention them every episode, but I don't think I could do this show in the same way without the work of Martin Graham's Jr. and Mark Zickery. You know, they're the guys who were on the ground floor and they're the ones where most of the trivia comes from. And there's other people as well, like Stuart Stanyard's book, and a couple of others that I I mention as I go, but you know, they're the real kind of trivia heroes, if you like, of, uh, of the podcast, and I couldn't do it without their work, so go out and buy their books. And Zach goes on to say, I just started listening last week and haven't reached the end of your season one run yet, but I make it through about three episodes a day, so I should be there in a month or two. Don't rush too much, Zach, because <laughs> they slow down after a while. He says, my my production company, Hand Me Down Films, has been working on its own monthly anthology series titled Analog for the past six months. We put out our first episode in March and we'll be running till August for a six episode first season. And then he sends me links on containment and harmony, which is the titles of his um, his first two episodes of Analog, and I checked it out. I enjoyed it. So you can go to YouTube too, and just uh, just search for those. It's called Analog, and the first episodes are called Containment and Harmony. So thanks for writing in, Zach.
2: All writers are born, never right. made. The talent to recreate in language the experience of life is has to be God-given. On the other hand. Uh, We can sharpen the wit of a writer. We can point out style to him. Uh, We can uh, use the criteria that is age-old, 3,000 years of theater, uh, that he can utilize to make a judgment on the value of his own work. Uh, We can show him what can move people, what can move human beings. He can go to see a play of Dyer Van Frank, and that's lesson one in the long facet of the human emotion. Uh, This kind of thing, with this kind of heart and simplicity, will move people. And that's a lesson. That's a great educative experience for him. Uh, This is not to say he must go out and write a story about a doomed child in an attic, but uh, the level of emotion that he can learn from that film is quite an experience for him. Uh, But when you you pose the age-old question, uh, can I learn to write Uh, Can I be taught to be creative? Uh, Can I be taught further uh, to analyze and dissect and observe? Because observation is key. This is paramount in the right of the Creator, to observe life. Uh, No, but you can say, those are where your eyes are, and you can say, use those eyes in that ghetto over there, or you can say, take that typewriter and take it up to your room and spew it out, that gut-level feeling that you have. You can show them how that's done. You can teach them a sense of, uh, of timing, a, a sense of discipline, which is paramount to the writer. You must be the most self disciplined beast walking the earth. Uh, nothing, and I don't think there's anything on earth as difficult as writing. I, I'm, I wish more good writers would put themselves and their own works to a test. I wish they would write. I too often hear from students, for example, Uh, or from anyone. Uh, I get this in the mail via correspondence, in sizable, voluminous amounts. I'm not a writer, but I've got this idea, and if you could just write it. Well, that's not the key question. The key question is, can you sit down and write it? Would you try? And then, of course, they're hung up by style and technique. They're hung up by uh, how do I split a page for a television script or something like that which is hardly of the essence. It's story that counts, it's heart, it's feeling, it's reality, it's legitimacy, it's authenticity, it's honesty. It's the capacity for the printed word or the spoken word to move you. These are the key things, not if you know how to split a script or if you know how, a, a, a screenplay, or uh, do you know what a camera direction is, this sort of thing. You can learn that in a trade school, I'm sure, and pro- probably in seven days.
0: Now, I've had another email from a friend of the show, Al, and he's going to fill another gap for me. And I love it when listeners do this, you know, send in bits of info to kind of answer questions that I've not been able to do. This is great. And he says, Dear Tom, I finally caught up and I wanted to drop your line to tell you how much I'm enjoying the podcast. I had been looking forward to your takes on some of my favorite episodes, such as Shadowplay and The Silence. These did not disappoint, but I've discovered that I'm especially enjoying your takes on my least liked episodes since you cover angles that make me appreciate them from a totally different direction. The best example of this is Dust, an episode we used to make fun of as kids. Your rundown of Dust's predecessors gave me a whole new perspective on what always seemed to be a rather hackneyed episode. I even stopped my listening to watch A Town Has Turned To Dust as you suggested, I had never before seen Dust as a companion to other sailing anti-prejudice pieces, and this episode deepened for me even more when I listened to a listener feedback episode and heard Jacob's comments from the perspective of a father loving his son. You know, thank you, Al. Um, I've um, i always said that, you know, it's, it's great to talk about the landmarks, but sometimes it's more interesting to dig into the ones that that aren't as loved as maybe those landmarks, because the landmarks have been talked to death and I think there's sometimes a bit more room around those less well-known episodes to kind of add more to the conversation if you like. So thank you, I'm glad you picked up on that. The arrival is another that I've always considered a failure since I haven't been able to get beyond Sheckley imagining actual airline personnel that he shouldn't know and hallucinating the opening before he arrives on the scene. I liked your description of the twist being a contract between the writer and the viewer and how that is slighted here as well as your conjecture that the Twilight Zone punishes people for letting themselves become too enslaved by human weakness. Your examination of this episode from a psychological perspective gave me new appreciation for it. Broken viewer writer contract notwithstanding. Like Perchance to Dream, it is actually an episode that has no SF or supernatural elements in it, but is an examination of the working of one man's tortured mind. The more I look at it solely that way, the more I like it. Keep up the great work, Tom, especially on The Mirror, Showdown with Rance McGrew, and other third season episodes that I don't like. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about them. Well, wow, that's cool, thank you, Al. I wanted to thank you for introducing old-time radio shows in your Patreon segments. I too am a big fan of these. Not only the series you've included in your first episode, but also of X-1, The Whistler, The Mysterious Traveler, Lights Out, Escape, The Weird Circle, and more. Please keep them coming. Uh, What Al is referring to, there is a podcast on the Patreon page. It's called Fifth Dimension Radio, and where I sort of pick out some of my favorite old time radio shows from around the time of the Twilight Zone to kind of see what else was going on in science fiction and present them in a kind of two hour format. So I'm glad you enjoy that, Al. And here's where he fills that gap for us. He says, as for Gus's question about zero hour in your listener feedback show, I can answer a bit of it. There was a short sailing interview by Robert R. Reese, finally published in Starlog. Number 203, June 1994. Reese recounts that he was Rod's sailing chauffeur in March 1974 for the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, where Rod promoted Zero Hour. Roberts interviewed Rod on the drive back to the airport, and the short interview appears in the magazine, including this segment. And then Al transcribes a short part of the interview, and it says. What about Zero Hour, the new radio show you're associated with? And Sailing Answers, So far we've canned 13 of them. Patty Duke, John Aston, and others have done them. I haven't written any of them, I've hosted all of them. On Twilight Zone I wrote the vast majority of shows and produced quite often. I am slated to ink five of the Zero Hour shows. Then he's asked, Since I've been raised in the TV generation, I know that audio with no video soon loses its appeal. Do you think this re-interest in radio is due to nostalgia? And Sailing answers, Radio can be interesting if it's done properly. This series should not just be camp or nostalgia material. We're using a new approach and techniques. And then he's asked, What would be the ideal working conditions? And Sailing answers, The ultimate is to have a marriage of the writer and director's aim on the project. I've worked with many directors, not just stuck with one. So then Al goes on and he says, So we can say with assurance that Rod wrote none of the first season, but may have written five of the later ones. I suspect he did not. Thanks again, Tom, for the great podcast and more. And that is from our friend Al. Well, thank you, Al. You know, it's... um like I said earlier, it's great when people write in and fill those gaps that I've not been able to, to fill myself. And some good comments there on those less like Twilight Zones. And I think we're on the same page there. I like to come to them and, uh, you know, really dig into what makes them work or not work.
2: You pose a problem here. The creator has this problem. Say he wants to tackle any current social evil, which most men of goodwill must admit is in a sense an evil and however you slice it, whatever your political spectrum, whatever your you know innermost beliefs, uh, any government which usurps the legitimate aspirations and legitimate aims and legitimate functions of a people is by nature more more bad than good and that's any government. The people should, I believe, be in the ascendancy. They should control. The people should have the power which is I think fundamentally a democratic form of government. On the other hand, you are given an assignment to create a story which deals with an evil element. Let's say we have to do a musical about Adolf Hitler. Now, can you conceive of any single redeeming human feature that you could insert which would, in a sense, at least allow you a modicum of sympathy for this little man? Now I can't, if somebody were to say to me you have 30 years and a million bucks a year and all you have to do is research Schickelgruber in Austria, beginning with his house painting and ending with his death in the bunker. And I swear to you young people, I could not for the life of me conjure up any redeeming feature. I was traumatized into writing by war events, by going through a war in a combat situation and feeling the desperate sense of the terrible need for some sort of therapy, get it out of my gut and write it down. This is the way it began for me. But I don't have the problem that George had, that George poses, as the problem of, of translation and communication, because I came back with 11 million other guys who had very similar problems. So it was not unique, nor was it not to be expected, that of this class of 46, we, were, we had very special problems that we were going to write about. Now, in the case of the young student today, his point of view is different. He has a much freer soul He is a more sophisticated man, and he's far more mature than we were, even with our war experiences. I think he's a much more social animal, much more terribly aware, and much more impatient. He doesn't want to go through the same ritual that we have gone through for years, and as has the young writer gone through for years, the business of uh, I must starve in a garret for 13 years, or I must have at least 37 rejection slips that will cover at least one half a living room wall and a part of the john. Uh, the young writer doesn't want that now. If he thinks, if I have merit, if I have quality, if I have something to say, you better sure as hell publish it. And is not nearly as, as subservient to, to custom as we were. Now, so- it behooves the professor nowadays <coughs> to be altogether cognizant of the new breed of creator.
4: Well, what should this professor do to encourage the young writer?
2: Well, I think first of all, every professor should take a cram course and what are the problems of our time as they relate to the young. Uh, We don't have, I don't think, except in strangely primitive, vicarious way, uh, any real knowledge of what bugs you people, of what turns you off, of what concerns you, of what gives you aches and grievances, of what gives you this desperate sense of impatience. I think it's altogether customary and painful that, and I share the instinct with my own children, that when they come with this problem of the aged, the problem of the hungry, the problem of the have-not, and I say to them in my old man fashion, well, no, look, we've had hunger, we've had geriatric problems, we've had the problems of the, of the put-upon, of the ethnic minorities and the rest of it, they, all oh, these things will come out all right. They say, no, no, they won't come out all right. Because the fact that you have them and I have them, means that they're not going to come out all right. That's one thing. Now that's, now we're talking substance, right. what we're writing about. Now in terms of technique, the new form is the no form. The new form in terms of liter- literature, in terms of the motion picture maker, is to wing it. Get that formless piece of clay into it any way you want. Don't look at the way Rodin carved, mm-hmm. and don't look at the way uh, any of the, the masters carved, or painted, or wrote find your own milieu. if you can get across your idea get it across if it comes in the color of purple you know with mobiles hanging from the sky with forest people speaking in an ancient greek if that's your bag you that's the way you do it there's it no other way who are we to say that's wrong so that might my, qu- my response to your question george is the professor number one should know what your problems are mm-hmm. at least vicariously and number two say don't preoccupy yourself don't fret don't tear hair, don't pull off your shirt in tatters because you've missed a comma, because you have a run-on sentence, because you've spit an infinitive. To hell with all that. What what, What is of the essence, what is key, what is major here is, what have you put down as an idea, as a set of characters, as a conflict? This is what's important.
1: So, well, a- after you've done that, what do you do with it? I mean, what do you personally do with it? Do you run out and you shout it from the steeple-tops, or well, do you uh, that's the lock it in a drawer? I guess that's the instinctive mm-hmm. thing that we all should do when we write.
2: Find the, uh, you know, the, the nearest ear of a friend and say, I have just written, I think, the great American novel, the definitive Pulitzer Prize-winning play, or simply the fine quote for all time, all men and all seasons. And I suppose the the key problem here is find the guy sufficiently honest to respond legitimately and authentically and with a sense of objectivity. But way down deep, who do you have to satisfy? Yourself? Absolutely. I think so.
0: Okay, I've had an email from a new friend of the show, also called Mike, another Mike from the one earlier. And he says, hi Tom, love the podcast. I have a question for you, not particularly to do with Twilight Zone, but more about your standing as a Twilight Zone podcaster. I've been listening since the beginning and it's interested me that since then, there seems to have been a proliferation of Twilight Zone podcasts. I just wondered what you think of this in general and do you actually listen to any of the other shows? Best wishes, Mike. Now, I responded to Mike uh, by email. And, but I thought it'd be quite interesting to talk about it because you know, way back when I've spoke about this a few times, probably in some form or another, but when I started, there was one Twilight Zone podcast on iTunes called the Twilight Zone Club that seemed to have, I think the lady who did it, Sharon, um, did maybe three or four episodes and then stopped. Then there was actually another Twilight Zone podcast, but it seemed to be limited to one website. It wasn't on uh, iTunes or anything. I, I can't remember the name of that one, but I think it was on a website called TalkShoe or something, and it was kinda only on that site. So really, the way was clear um, for a Twilight Zone podcast. So these days, if a new TV show comes out, there will instantly be podcasts talking about it you know there'll be half a dozen podcasts overnight saying uh you know let's say Breaking Bad or something like that I'm sure there's probably you know a ton of podcasts that go through that episode by episode you know what I mean what do I think about the proliferation of Twilight Zone podcasts I-, I have to admit in the beginning it was a bit it was a bit strange because like I said things were a bit different back then it was like you can even see with the name of the show, the Twilight Zone podcast. It was like, okay, nobody's doing the Twilight Zone, so I'll do it. It's the Twilight Zone podcast. You know, I didn't come up with some uh, fancy name or anything. It was just like, no one's doing Twilight Zone, I'll do Twilight Zone. So there, so there it was for a while. I, I think it was just me, and then I think it was perhaps the Twilight Pone who came along next, uh, probably, but I can't remember hundred percent. And yeah, it it was a bit strange because it was just like, hold on, I do the Twilight Zone, you know what I mean? Um, So I suppose it was a little bit strange because it was kind of like, hold on, I've already got the Twilight Zone covered, what are you doing? Um, But that soon kind of dissipated because at the end of the day, they had a very different take on the material um, and the way they were presenting their show. And it's a take that I uh, came to appreciate quite a lot. I think really what's happened is just that the Twilight Zone has caught up like everything else has. You know, there's probably a billion Star Trek podcasts out there covering the shows. There's probably a ton of Doctor Who podcasts out there covering the shows. So for me, I think as long as people come to it with their own take on the material, then that's great. And you know, I've I've spoken to several of the twilight zone podcasters behind the scenes you know the twilight Zone guys are great Craig beams a nice guy i've spoken to him uh brandon i've spoken to him too you know it, it's not really competition to be honest it's it's nice that people are still talking about this show and I, and I think it's just caught up like i say there's a ton of doctor who and star trek podcasts and the twilight zone is kind of caught up in that way and i would rather be There'd be more and more people talking about the Twilight Zone because it hasn't really damaged this podcast any because more people listen now than ever have. So my audience is my audience and I'm sure that some of you out there uh, consume some of the others as well and that's absolutely fine. So, you know, it's kind of nice not to be on your own in a way and to have a a, a little kind of chat about it behind the scenes with, with other podcasters. I think... I think one of my regrets, actually, as a Twilight Zone podcaster is that Twilight Zone fandom, it's not quite the same as something like Star Trek fandom or Doctor Who fandom where there are new things coming out that keep the fan base kinda moving and uh, active, that kind of thing. Because what I would love to have done is, I don't think Twilight Zone conventions really exist anymore because Yes, there is the 80s show and the 2000s show, but people see them as kind of a lesser product than the original series. Whereas things like Star Trek, there was new series coming out for a while, there's a new one coming out soon, there's the movies. So that fandom is kind of kept alive. Would it be the same if there was only the original series and nothing else, or some sort of failed 80s revival? maybe it wouldn't be as active as it is now. So I think my only regret is that there isn't the convention kind of scene for the Twilight Zone because I would have loved, you know, sometimes at these conventions, they have panels and they've done, and they do panels of, you know, Star Trek podcasters or Doctor Who podcasters who get up there and answer questions from the audience and talk about their approach to podcast and their love of the material they're podcasting about. And I think it would have been a really great thing to do to go to a convention and sit on a panel with other Twilight Zone podcasters and meet them and share that experience and you know meet listeners, that kind of thing. It would be something really great, but unfortunately, because Twilight Zone fandom, probably isn't as active because sadly most of the people involved with the original show have passed away now and there hasn't been a twilight zone product that has really captured that magic again you know sadly it's not as active as those other types of things so you know the convention scene doesn't really exist for twilight zone i don't think so it's a shame because it's something that i would have loved to have done now, you asked, do I listen to other Twilight Zone podcasts? And I would say, and I don't mean this with any kind of malice towards anyone else, but I would say for the most part, no. Because of the pace of my show, people often move ahead of me in, in what they're covering, and I don't want to burn out on the Twilight Zone, or listen to uh, other people's opinions that might that might change the way I present my show, because you know, let's say Game of Pool. If I listen to someone else's Game of Pool podcast and they present certain trivia or say certain things, then I would be less likely to to present that trivia or say those things myself because I would just feel like I'm repeating someone else. So if I keep myself kind of focused on my own thing, then it means that when I do actually present that show about a Game of Pool, the opinions are my own trivia is stuff that i've researched and it might be that i have the exact same opinion as a different podcaster and you know we present the same trivia but at least i know that i've done it myself and uh, i might have done that differently if i'd heard someone else talking about it first so that's quite kind of a long answer to a short question but do i listen to others for the most part no but once I've released a, a new episode, then I do like to listen to the Twilight Pwn guys take on it because, because they are much more lighthearted. It's almost like a kind of wind down, if you like. You know, I've spent hours and hours researching and recording this podcast and then kind of wind down and hear what they have to say on it. So... You know, that's something I always do.
2: The instinct of creativity must be followed by the act, the physical act of putting it down for a sense of permanence. Once you get that prod, that emotional jar, that I have witnessed something, or I have felt something, or I have seen something, or through observation, I have been moved by an event, I think the answer is get it down, get it down quickly, write it down. Now, very often, by virtue of its the, the, the very... Uh, The enormity of the emotion, you will write it down in perhaps a distorted fashion, or an improper fashion, or an incorrect fashion, or your values may be a little juxtaposed. You may be too moved by the emotion. Uh, You haven't stepped far enough away back to get a perspective of the event. But I think, as a basic overall thing, the clue to the writer, to the creator, is don't let it die a boiling in the head. Mm -hmm. Don't let it exist as just a simple memory. will move you or will conjure up a beautiful tune later on. The principal obligation you have as the writer is to go to a climax which interests and excites and and if it doesn't satisfy uh, at least makes an audience sit up and take notice of it. It must also be valid. It must take the various character traits of the individuals involved in your story and make them do something or react to something as their nature dictates. This is to say that, for example, if you're dealing with a Quaker pacifist who is constantly being beaten around the head by the neighborhood bully and who suddenly at one given moment in his life says, I will not turn my cheek again, I will hit back, and does so, you must must absolutely believe that there is a moment when a man will turn his back on a fundamental belief and do something foreign to his nature. Or the reverse is true. You can show a bully who all his life has stepped on people, who does it out of a sense of sheer cruelty, who has no sense of the value of the dignity of other human beings or the feelings of other human beings, and in a given moment in time put into a position where he has a chance to save someone he couldn't care less about, but literally risks his life to do so. There must be a reason he does it and a believable explanation as to why he does it, and the fact that you believe that he does it. This is the sort of thing you must do let us say that in our analysis of the, uh, the art of creativity, we have uncovered the following truths and uh, verities, that uh, creativity is an altogether personal thing. It's an art that cannot be taught normally. Uh, it's a demanding, frustrating, challenging facet of the human experience uh, that by and large one can create so long as he is ingenious, novel, different, imaginative, uh, as opposed to the more sedentary and staid professions in which the use of the imagination is not paramount. The guy that fixes the pipe can be competent and skillful, amazingly so, but putting one pipe on another doesn't require an act of creativity. I think these are the truths that we seem to have touched upon. Does anybody have anything to say sort of en passant here in passing?
4: Well, just the fact that that does not become a creative act until this man finds a new way of doing it. Ah, until good. this man fixes a pipe in a way or solves a problem in a way in which absolutely, I
1: stand corrected, Steve. Build a better mousetrap. That's an act of creativity. I like your original uh, statement before, where you said about the the writer, the way the writer creates. He sits in front of his typewriter and he bleeds. Yeah, that's not my original. I can't remember who said it. I, I think though it, it c- comes down to the point that, you know, we all have to give a little bit of ourselves. No question. I think and the writer writes, you know, and he,
3: we've been talking about it for a while now and have examined some of the problems, but finally he doesn't talk about or worry about, I don't think, uh, if he's going to be a writer. The mechanics, he writes. And to, to find, find yourself
1: your own separate I don't
3: days. think
2: he's going to be able <clears> to write with bare feet after stamping on the, you know, in the grape vat, necessarily. I don't think that he can enjoy total license to just, you know, throw mud balls on the wall and say, that is art. I think there has to be certain legitimate criteria which govern a form. But let's say that he must not preoccupy himself with commas and adjectives mm-hmm. and the rest of the stuff so long as a whole idea can be created. And this, this passing remark of my own uh... in terms of creativity. I think the most singularly oft-asked question is one that Doris asked me. What do you do? How do you do it? How do you create it? I find it very difficult. I think Doris has mentioned this a couple of times. In truth, you will always find it difficult. The creation of an idea, the following of a story germ, the building up of a plot, the creating of people, of flesh and blood character, These are not easy things. They're extremely difficult. But conversely, don't be put off by the fact that this month you can't do it, and next month is maybe even harder. This is, if not a lifetime process, it's awfully close to it. The writer broadens, becomes deeper, becomes more observant, becomes more tempered, becomes much wiser over a period of time passing. It is not something that is injected into him by a needle it is not something that comes on a wave of flashing explosive light one night and say huzzah eureka i've got it and then proceeds to write the great american novel in eleven days it doesn't work that way it's a long tedious tough frustrating process but never ever be put aside by the fact that it's hard if it weren't hard everybody would be a writer and we'd have nothing but books slovenly grubby filthy heavy (laughs) gudgy books, weighting our world down. The fact that it is a very selective and a very challenging process, unique to a few, is what makes literature so valuable and so wonderful. Well, you've been fine, thank you all of you very much.
0: Now, I kinda replied to Mike, probably not as uh, long form as that in an email, and then Mike fired back a question that I've often been asked, so I guess it's time to maybe put a definitive answer on that. Um, And his question was, once I'm finished with the classic Twilight Zone show, will I then go on to the 80s show and the 2000s show? At the beginning of the podcast, if you'd asked me that question, I'd have probably said yes. But since then, with the time it's taken to get where we are now, and the time it will probably take to get to the end of the classic Twilight Zone, I think my my view on that has probably changed. You know, the thing about classic Twilight Zone is it's a show that I love unreservedly. You know, there there are obviously gonna be better episodes and worse episodes, but for the most part, it's a really great series from start to finish. People write books on it, there's lots of trivia, lots of things you can research and so on. So there's lots of things you can pull, lots of sources that you can pull in to a twilight zone podcast the way i do here that's where the enjoyment comes for me you know pulling all this stuff together and trying to create something that other people enjoy now no one really writes about the 80s twilight zone no one really writes about the 2000s twilight zone there is probably scope for maybe speaking to people involved in it because they're still alive now but a lot of people involved with it were kind of the upper echelons of television that I'm really not gonna get access to anyway. So all you're really left with is, what do I think of each episode? It it wouldn't really be the same Twilight Zone podcast in a way and it would purely be reviews and there's, there's value in that, but I think by the time I get to the end of the classic Twilight Zone, I mean, look at how many episodes there are of the '80s and '2000s show. If you put them all together, I think it's more or less like a hundred episodes. So, again, it's it's a big commitment to to cover those. And I think by the time I've finished doing the classic show, it's not that I'll be sick of the Twilight Zone, but I think I will feel like I've done my bit in the Twilight Zone. You know, so it's gonna be. A really nice body of work that I can look back on and say, you know, I've done that. I don't think I could commit to 100 episodes after this for the reboots that I'm not that fond of. That's not to say they're all bad, I I, I don't think they are, but I think it'd just be a bit of a come down to do it at the end of the classic show. And I'm not sure it's something I could really commit to at the end of that you know i might want to move on to something completely different i might want to stop podcasting altogether you never know but i think where we are now there's there's a few years of twilight zone podcast left anyway with the pace i cover them i I, i'm working on more or less two episodes a month at the moment and you know i enjoy doing it so i don't think i could really put another hundred episodes on that looking at those 80s and 2000s shows. But it seems to be something that people have asked for since the beginning. And, you know, Mike asked that question and then I kinda had a little email exchange with Al who we read the email from before and, and said, you know, is this, is this something that, that you as a Twilight Zone fan would would want? And he says, well, actually, yes, I enjoy a lot of the '80s Twilight Zone, and if people keep asking you it, people are interested in it. So you know that is a fair point. But if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do something, and and I've already said that I can't do it at the end of the Twilight Zone when the door closes on the Twilight Zone podcast, I will either continue it in some completely different way or it will end. So I can't do. I couldn't look at those episodes after this Twilight Zone podcast, but maybe I could do something with them at the same time. But I think the Twilight Zone podcast does take me such a long time to do that. Any other podcast kind of stuff I do now, I tend to do on Patreon because there's there's a bit of a comeback. You know, all we have is our time. George Clayton Johnson said that. Doing podcasting for the love of it is great, but, what i've found with doing stuff on patreon is it kind of spares me on a bit because people are kind of behind you on on patreon and they're supporting what you do and they're kind of standing up and being counted and saying you know what we're going to support you we're going to take care of your hosting fees you're providing us with entertainment that you take your own spare time to do so we're going to support you and i've always said that no part of what i do on patreon is gonna be something that I've taken out of the Twilight Zone podcast to do. But seeing as the new Twilight Zones are something that I'm not gonna do in the Twilight Zone podcast, then I think it's something that I maybe can do in tandem with the Twilight Zone podcast on the Patreon page. So that's what I'm gonna do. And these aren't gonna be Twilight Zone podcast length examinations of each episode. What it's literally gonna be is I'm gonna say watch an episode of the 80's show and turn the microphone on and do a very loose audio review of it. That's what it's gonna be, it's gonna kinda just be me turning on the mic and saying, well, here's what I thought of Shatterday or here's what I thought of, you know, the remake of Eye of the Beholder and just kinda talking out my thoughts on the microphone and seeing what happens. So they're probably gonna be like mini podcasts for the $3 a month Patreon supporters level. So it's something I'm gonna do because I think had that platform not been there, then I never would have done it on the Twilight Zone podcast. But there's kind of more of a reason to do it this way um, to kind of help support the twilight zone podcast overall so that's a very long winded answer i tend to ramble on a bit sometimes so so yes there we are and um, i hope you've enjoyed this slightly different episode of the twilight zone podcast i'm going to be catching a plane to vegas soon i will speak to you in june when we speak about a game of pool